So friends, we're beginning a new series on on joy over the next few weeks, Sunday morning and then leading up to Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the best opportunity we have to invite people uh, to church, particularly those who don't normally come to church. And so the whole series I'm doing on Sunday mornings and then building up to Sunday evening is all about joy, Christmas joy. And this morning uh, we're looking at um, shocking joy. That's what I've called the, the title and it's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We're going to be looking at a, a series of these uh, special Christmas-themed messages over the next few weeks. And this morning we're doing the famous annunciation from, from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. As I say, I've called it Shocking Joy, and I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to look at it together. So let's hear God's word, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. When we have visitors from out of town or even out of state or especially when they come in from out of the country, relatives or friends who fly in from the UK, one of the things we'll try to do is give them a taste of what America is like, of course, uh, and what Chicago is like. And one way to give visitors from out of the country a taste of Chicago is to take them to one of the professional sports games. And Chicago has all these massive sports arenas, as you know, and occasionally someone will be kind enough to give me a ticket or two, and so I'll, I'll take a friend who, or relative who comes around of town to see some professional sports game. And one time we went to see uh, the Cubs, and it was, a, it was a big game. It was towards the end of the season. It was a lot of drama around this particular uh, game. It was what I think they call the playoffs. Is that right? I don't know. Anyway... So we went, uh, this uh, relative of, uh, of, of mine and I, to the game. And uh, the other subtext of this story is that my relative, though he's been to the country a few times and has been to some baseball games and has not much more of an understanding of the rules than I do, but perhaps a little less, has actually never seen a run scored in a baseball game. So I, I said to him, look, we're going to go to the Cubs, it's the playoffs. For sure there's going to be a run scored, okay? So we went down there and, and, you know, the seats were fine, not particularly special, but the place was packed, it was rocking, you know, it was really, it was a pretty dramatic moment and, and inning after inning went until they got to the ninth inning and by the end of the ninth inning there was still no run scored and so we looked at each other with kind of whimsical smile of amusement that only the British can achieve and, <laughs> and decided it was time to leave and so we left. And we left and went down the streets and we thought, well, no one else is following us, but, you know, well, that means we can get to our car quicker and make our way out of this packed downtown area around Wrigley Field. And as we're walking to our car, there was this massive roar of kind of sporting equivalent of hallelujah. Uh, and uh, we, we weren't quite sure what that was until we discovered later that actually, in, you know, they keep on playing until someone wins. And... and, and and the Cubs had won, you see. And, and, and so Mark Twain says this. It's not, it's not when we're wrong that we get into trouble. 
is what we know for sure, but just ain't so. So we know, knew for sure that the game had ended, but it just it wasn't so. And when it comes to this theme of joy, many of us have in our own minds different ideas about what joy is. And we're sure about it. And that's what gets us into trouble. It's not when we're wrong we get into trouble. It's what we know for sure, but just ain't so. So many people define joy as happiness or real happiness or an excitement or something like that. That was a joyful time. But actually, we need to define it more carefully. So this is our series, Christmas Joys, a series we're looking at shocking joy this morning. And here's a quotation from C.S. Lewis, a very influential man, C.S. Lewis, of course, in Christian things. If you've been a Christian for a while, you would have heard preachers like me quote C.S. Lewis. But if you're not a Christian, he's influenced a lot of people. And this book, which is his kind of his autobiography, is called Surprised by Joy, because when he becomes a Christian, he was from an atheistic background, when he becomes a Christian, he's surprised that he finds joy in, in Jesus. But, and it's been hugely influential on in all sorts of different ministries and emphases about joy. What, what is fascinating about it is that most of these ministries' emphases define joy, either explicitly or implicitly, more commonly implicitly. It's what we, th- we think we know for sure, but just ain't so. It's when we get into trouble. They define it in a way quite different to the way C.S. Lewis defines it. This is how he defines it. Joy is an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. An unsatisfied desire, so there's a desire, but it's not yet fully satisfied, which is itself more desirable than any other kind of satisfaction. And I'm going to read the rest of the quotation because I think it's important for us to get this clear in our minds at the beginning of this series that I hope you join us for today and over the next few weeks. He carries on. I called it joy, which must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from this, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, And pleasure often is. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. That's joy. A desire for something bigger and better that you want more and more of. Now, if we often get the definition of joy wrong, we often look at this passage, this famous annunciation to Mary that has been... The text, the, 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 the basis for so many different hymns and songs over the years, we misunderstand what has been said to Mary. And that's really important we get right in the beginning too. 
So here's a quotation from Joel Green. Joel Green wrote probably the best uh, modern commentary on, on Luke's, Luke's gospel. And he very helpfully makes it clear that the greeting, so when it says, greetings, O favor one, it's not, the angel isn't just saying, hello, Mary, hi. It's not just a greeting. In fact, what, what the angel is almost certainly saying is joy, rejoice. And uh, Joel Green has a long uh, uh, argument as to why he, he thinks that's the case. But basically what he's saying is that the Greek word behind the word that translated as greetings, which is Cairo, is rightly translated here as joy. Because elsewhere when Luke wants to say greetings, hello, he uses a different Greek word. And this is, should be rightly translated, rejoice, Mary. So, and, of course, it was a shock for her and for anyone else who really understands it, which is why we're calling it shocking joy. So we need to get both those things right at the beginning. First, the definition, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And then to be really clear in our minds <laughs> at the start that this passage that we're looking at when it says greetings is about joy. And, of course, we don't need to be literalistically rooted into terminological kind of um, uh, legalism. There's joy in all sorts of passages in the Bible where the word joy is not there, but it, the feeling of joy and the message of joy is there using different words. And of course, this is a, a joyful moment, whatever translation you use for the word greetings, uh, the, the Greek word kaira behind greetings. But if you are thinking literalistically, then actually I think Joel Green is right. The right translation is is rejoice or joy. So what, what I want to do in the next few moments then for us together is to give you four insights from this passage about, about joy and how to have it. Uh, to begin with, it's going to be the wrong way and then the right way. So first of all, we look for joy in the wrong places. Verse 26. Uh, this would have been a, a real shock for the original readers. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Both those things would have been a shock and would have felt like the wrong place. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. That is, it was not thought to be the sort of place where particularly biblical Jewish religious things occurred it was the it was the pagan area it was the place that had gone into exile first and had retained pagan influence it was a place of of global multiculturalism uh, not not where you'd expect an angel to turn up Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, we know that from Isaiah chapter 9 that it is promised, and those who would have remembered the, the prophecy of Isaiah would have realized this at the time, that it was promised that this would happen in Galilee. But even in Isaiah chapter 9, it's a surprise, it's a shock. Those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee was a place of darkness. Paganism, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, But not only uh, did it seem like it was the wrong place because it was Galilee, it also seemed like it was the wrong place because it was Nazareth. Angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And we know from uh, John's gospel that Nazareth was viewed as the last place on earth that you would ever expect God to show up. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Expecting the answer, well, of course not. It's Nazareth. It's the wrong place. And we often today look for joy in the wrong places too. Or we assume that God cannot turn up in what to us feels like the wrong place. Perhaps you were born on the south side of Chicago and every time you're in Wheaton you feel like you have to apologize for it. Or perhaps... You are on the other side of the tracks in Wheaton. You know, that, that, that place, Nazareth of the Galilees, South Wheaton. The other side of the tracks. Or maybe Nazareth of the Galilee is North Wheaton if you're from South Wheaton. He went to the wrong school. Uh, you know, you went to Oxford, not Cambridge. Those of you who know me will know I'm joking by that. Uh, you didn't go to Wheaton College. You're from the wrong kind of place. How could God ever give you any real spiritual blessing? You're from the wrong side of the tracks. Place can either lift us up or push us down. But in either way, we can look for joy in the wrong places, defined by place rather than defined by God is and what he's going to do. It can, it can lift us up. We can feel like, oh, I, I come from the right place. I've got the right kind of background, the right kind of heritage. But that kind of pride, which of course is what it is, can, protect, can prevent us from actually experiencing God. It can, it can lift us up, puff us up with human hubris and pride and arrogance. Or it can push us down. I don't deserve to be here. Who, who, would, who would ever think that someone from my kind of background could be the kind of person that God would use? I'm from the wrong sort of place. We often uh, look for joy in the wrong, uh, the wrong place, but we often also, second, look for joy in the wrong people, not just the wrong place, but the wrong people. Verse 27, so the angel Gabriel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, uh, well, that's good, but the virgin's name was Mary, a virgin. What, what, what a huge shock it must have been for Mary and for anyone else who was so familiar with this story that we miss how shocking it is intended uh, intended how much we are meant to be shocked by what Luke tells us and how he tells us here Mary was the wrong kind of person why she was very young certain kinds of churches biased towards the old 
those who've been around for a long time. They want it their way. And the 13-year-old girl, she cannot possibly be how God is powerfully at work. She's very young. The wrong kind of person. And Luke deliberately intends us to have that kind of feeling about it because he contrasts what, uh, how Mary responds to the message of the angel Gabriel with Zechariah. Zechariah, just previously in Luke chapter 1, has also had a message from Zechariah. Zechariah is the right kind of person. He's old, he's got white hair, he's experienced, he's a priest. He's also in the right kind of place. He's in the temple. And yet, Zechariah refuses the message of the angel. But Mary, very, very, very young, inexperienced, in the wrong place, She's the one who gets it. Of course, she was also a virgin, which is a shock. Always has been a shock. Was to her. And we know it was uh, promised in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Originally, almost certainly intended in Isaiah chapter 7 to be a young person. The original Fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, but then fully fulfilled, like all prophecies in the Old Testament, have a further fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, fully fulfilled in Mary, who it is emphasized again and again and again. She did not know a man. She was a virgin, a virgin, a virgin. She was a literal virgin. And that, that has been a shock for many people. Perhaps it is for you. How can we modern scientific people believe in a virgin birth but of course it's always been a difficult thing to believe isn't it it's not as if it took the 18th century beginning of science to start to figure out where babies came from it was a shock to her and to other people the only way to understand it is to accept that it's beyond understanding it's a miracle But she's the wrong kind of person, very young, not like Zachariah. She's not, um, she's not one of the big people. She's one of the little people. Sometimes you can spot who, who thinks they're one of the big people by even their body posture. They kind of put their shoulders back and they walk around like this and they look you in the eye. They're one of the big people. They're in charge. But Mary is one of the little people, very, 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 very young. Oh, she's the wrong kind of person. We often today look for joy in the wrong, in the wrong places and the wrong people. Uh, I think one of the predominant ways today as Christians we're looking for joy in the wrong places is we're looking for joy in politicians. Our joy as God's people is not going to be found in a political leader. Whoever that may be, surely we know better than to buy again 
the snake oil idea that the one who's going to save the world is a politically elected official. And yet, every election cycle, there comes this almost messianic feeling about who's going to be the next politician. That's not going to save us. No way. We look for joy in the wrong people. We look for joy in politicians, also in priests, I think. Zachariah is the right kind of person, and yet, yet he's not the right. He, he, looking for joy from him is, is the wrong kind of place and person to find joy in Zachariah. And today, often people look for joy from priests, experienced men of learning and, and, and authority, Father figures of the faith. Zacharias, the wrong places. Look, I'm not a priest. Um, Jesus is our great high priest. And anyone through faith in Jesus has direct access to God. They are priests because they have access to the holy of holy places. Any real believer, it's called the priesthood of all believers, the doctrine. Any real believer is a priest. I'm, not, I'm a priest in the sense I'm a Christian. But my office is as a pastor. But even so, you can't, you, you can't expect to come to church and think, from Josh Moody, I'm going to get joy. No, you're not. No way. Not from any preacher. And you, you can't go to a podcast or a YouTube or a radio program and think, I'm going to get joy from that preacher. He has the authority. No, 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 no. That's the wrong It's the wrong kind of people. That's not where it's going to come from. Not ultimately. Not from the Zacharias. We look for joy in the wrong people, the wrong politicians, priests. I think for many people it's their parents. Of course, we should rightly uh, obey godly parents when we're young. And our parents can give us lots of helpful insight But whether your parents were good or bad, disappointing or exemplary, the joy you need is not going to be found ultimately from your mom or your dad. It's the wrong wrong kind of people. Many people, of course, look for joy in in their peers, what their friends think. Some people look for joy from what their boss thinks, their supervisor. They're, like if the boss gave them a the good report that week, they're, they're exhilarated. If they got a bad report that week, they're, in the, they're down in the depths. They're looking for joy in, in people, in the wrong people. And one way you can diagnose whether you're doing that is whether criticism devastates you and praise exalts you because either is is wrong-headed there are always going to be people who criticize you and there are always going to be some people who like you but if you put your joy in people that's the wrong that's the wrong place the wrong people to do that it's not going to work you'll be lifted up one moment cast down the next So that's, those are the wrong ways to go about it. What is the right way? Third, we discover joy by receiving grace. First part of verse 28. So the angel comes to Mary and said, Greetings, 
O favored one. Now, what does that mean? And we've sung it so often. (laughs) Like, it's been the basis of any number of different carols. And I remember when I was a 10-year-old boy, and we we would have to go with our school friends to a a, a Christmas carol service of one kind or another. And they would often sing at that the, the, the angel Gabriel song where he comes and greets Mary and, and it, greetings, O highly favored lady. And me and my other 10, 15-year-old boys at the time used to always, friends, used to always snigger. And we, instead of singing highly favored lady, we would sing out highly flavored gravy. <laughs> and so... Whenever I hear that carol, I'm afraid I cannot. I just hear highly flavored gravy every single time. What does it mean? Oh, oh favored one. Eh? What? Uh, translators have struggled down through the years of how to translate it. Wycliffe, who was the, actually the, <clears throat> the first translation in English wasn't Tyndale, it was Wycliffe. Though Wycliffe translated from the Latin, the Vulgate, not from the original Greek, which is why if you know translations, it's normally a true to Tyndale. But the first English translation, Wycliffe, uh, in the 14th century, he translated it as full of grace. Uh, Tyndale, in the 16th century, also translated it as full of grace. But then interestingly, the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible put together under the auspices and authority and influence of John Calvin in Geneva, and his ongoing influence. The Geneva Bible translated this as freely beloved. You get a sense of how difficult it is to translate. The reason why I think the Geneva Bible translated that way is because the other time this word is used in the New Testament is in the letter to the Ephesians and there it is often translated as uh, beloved or, or something like that. Freely loved, freely beloved. And of course the authorized version or the King James Version as Uh, as that hymn, that carol represents, translates it as highly favored. And the ESV here translated as, O favored one. But the point of the annunciation of Mary, uh, of Gabriel to Mary, is not that she is somehow um, already that she somehow already has lots of grace. That's to misunderstand what the angel says. The point is not that Mary already has lots of grace, but that she is going to receive lots of grace. She will be favored. Grace will fill her. She's beloved. So it's not that she has lots of grace, but she's going to receive lots of grace or lots of favor. And what does that mean then for us practically? Well, what it means is we discover joy by receiving grace. In other words, joy is not in you, but in him. What an important lesson that is for people today. We are told over and over and over again (laughs) that the way to find joy is to be true to yourself, love yourself, discover yourself. All of that 
is wrong. The way to find joy is not in you, but in him. It's not what you have, but what he has. It's not whether you have a nice car, a nice house, a nice family. Uh, it's not whether you're clever and have a good education. It's not, it's not whether you're doing well in your career. It's not whether you're handsome or beautiful, good-looking. It's not whether you've got personal charisma. It's nothing to do with what you have. It's what he has. You receive his grace. It's not from looking inside, but by looking up. Uh, one person who uh, discovered this in a really dramatic way was the, the 18th century preacher called George Whitfield. He put it like this. God was pleased to remove the heavy load, to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal even me. You know the humility? Even me. To seal even me to the day of everlasting redemption. And then he, this is how he describes the experience. Oh, with what joy. Joy unspeakable. He's quoting from the New Testament there. Even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my discolent soul. Oh, what joy from receiving grace. Which means as we go through this series over the next few weeks, my, my constant encouragement, exhortation for each of us will be not to look inside and figure out whether we've got what joy or not, but instead to receive grace, that is, to open the gift of Christmas. Meaning Christ himself. So we discover joy by receiving grace. And then finally, we discover uh, joy by experiencing God's presence. This is the second half of verse 28. Uh, the angel comes to Mary. Greetings that we've seen is rejoice. O favor one, be the recipient of grace. Discover joy by receiving grace. And then the second half of verse 28, the Lord is with you. That is the presence of God. The Lord is with you. So we receive grace, we discover joy. We experience joy in an ongoing way by inculcating, encouraging the presence of God in our life. How do we do that? Well, the presence of the Lord in the person of Jesus. That's why the Lord is with Mary She's going to have Jesus in her womb. Of course the Lord is with her. God himself is with her in a unique and extraordinary, miraculous way. The person of Jesus. 
So my friends, don't think that you're going to get joy by getting into some kind of abstract notion of truth or some vague principle or other. It's the person of Jesus himself. That's the presence of God. Uh, the presence of the Lord in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, ascended on high and then sent his spirit so that we're not left like orphans in the world. We have the spirit of Jesus Christ with us here and now. To receive his spirit is to experience his presence with us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. It, it, it reorders our desires so we want more and more of him. Not yet fully satisfied, but one day will be fully satisfied in the second coming of Jesus. We have a taste of joy in the presence of God by his Spirit. Uh, we discover joy by experiencing God's presence in the preaching of his word. Do you think that preaching is teaching? It's a misunderstanding. Preaching includes teaching. But preaching is more than just teaching. Preaching is the teaching of God's word in a context of worship so the presence of God is with us. And the angel Gabriel is a token of the preacher. Of course, this preacher, Gabriel, was a supernatural preacher. But the word angels is, is, is just messenger. Preachers are messengers sent by God. Spurgeon has a wonderful bit in one of his sermons where he talks about how God has given congregations human preachers. And the advantages of that, because a human preacher suffers too and experiences the difficulties in our theme this morning with, with discovering joy too and all sorts of other things. So I'm, I'm one of you, I'm human too, whereas a supernatural angel messenger doesn't experience the same kind of things. He talks about the advantages of a human preacher. And then he says, in typical, inimical, Spurgeon-esque way, some of you will be glad, I think, if next week there was an angel in the pulpit instead of the, your, your preacher. But I warrant you that before too long, you will want your old friend back again in the pulpit because he suffers as you suffer and struggles as you suffer, as you struggle. And in that context is a messenger of the word. So one of the ways we experience the presence of God is by listening to the preaching of his word. But then also the presence of the Lord in the family of his church. Here's why virtual church is a contradiction in terms. Could you have a virtual family? A virtual Thanksgiving family? I mean, you could do it for a moment, I guess. You could kind of zoom in a relative who's sick, and that would be something. But it's not the same as being together. And even more, there is a mystical reality to the body of Christ. That Jesus somehow spiritually is here 
His body is here. And if you're not yet a Christian, perhaps you sense there's something supernatural taking place. Well, it's because there is. We're gathered as the body of Christ. The Lord is here. And so one way to experience more and more of the joy of God is by his presence. And and then one way to do that is through the family of his church, coming to church. Uh, I have one friend who puts all this in a little phrase that I've always quite liked. In other words, you should hang out where Jesus hangs out. Well, uh, you remember the beginning we had the Chicago Cubs game and me and my relative, we left too early. I encourage you not to leave too early. The next few weeks, Sunday mornings and then Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing this theme of joy. Stay with us. Bring friends with us each week. So I trust on that Christmas Eve there'd be a burst of roaring hallelujah as we experience joy together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, Mary. Thank you for her receptivity. Help us, Lord, to discover joy by receiving grace and by experiencing your presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.